You've heard the saying, when a certain person speaks, people listen. It's one of those people who maybe doesn't dominate conversations, doesn't talk a lot, but when they do speak, uh, then we listen because they usually have words of wisdom. They usually have something insightful to say. So today is one of those days in 1 John, and I don't say that to diminish any of the, the rest of the book. It is all God's word, and it is all helpful and instructive and useful for teaching and correction and training and righteousness. But I say that because the, the Apostle John, in terms of his writing style, he is responsible, we know, for the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, and then the epistles that we are walking through this summer, those three books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And one thing that's clear is John does not give a lot of commands. One commentator, one theologian in the, the, the New Testament um, did a study of um, how many imperative verbs, which are commands, the do's and the do nots, how many there are per thousand words of, of each book and found that if you take the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have about 12 to 13 commands for every thousand words. John has about seven commands for every thousand words. So just, again, indicative of his style being a little different. Some of Paul's letters, there are just a wealth of commands the do's and the do nots. In fact, in First and Second Timothy, it's uh, on average about 23 commands per thousand words. And then you come to the book of First John. There are a total of 10 imperative verbs. That's four for every thousand words. So that tells you something about John's writing style. He is more narrative, more descriptive, more stating of fact, if you will, telling us who Jesus is, what the gospel is, who we are as a result of that, how that should impact our lives. In a sense, I think as we've seen in 1 John, he really wants us to see who we are in Christ. That, that if we can see how God has made us, who he has made us to be, what he has done for us, then that should impact our lives. That should change how we live and think and act. And so it should grab our attention when we get to 1 John 2, verse 15, and it is the first of those imperative verbs, the first of 10 commands in the book of 1 John. And this one says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Knowing all that we now know about John, we know that this is likely not going to be a standalone command, that in fact, he's going to, around it, give some, some, some substance, some argumentation, some explanation that will help incentivize and exhort us to obey it. He's going to give us enough to help us to, that when we see the command, we know he's not simply saying, don't do this. He wants to arm his dear readers with the explanations as to who you are and why this matters so that you would, you would not only not be, uh, you would not only not do what you're told not to do, but you would, you would be unwilling to even consider it. You, you, you would see that, that the argumentation behind it is so clear. And so this morning, we'll be in 1 John 2, 12 to 17. I'm going to get to three supporting arguments he gives for the command. And that'll be the last half of the sermon. But I want to really spend the first half thinking about the command itself. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And one of the first things that should trigger for you is John 3, 16, 
where it says God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so immediately you've got a command that says to not love the world or the things in the world, and yet it's clear that God so loved the world that he sends his son to make the way of salvation for sinners. And so we need to get a clear handle on 1 John 2.15, and what is it that we are not to love? How, how is this um, different from John 3.16? The, the Greek word for world is, is not different. Cosmos, we, we get our English word cosmos. Um, and, and it has basically three categories of meaning throughout the New Testament. The, the first would be the sort of obvious one, the world as in the, the planet Earth, uh, the, the, the part of the universe that God has created for our habitation. So in John 17.5, Jesus prays, says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, before the cosmos came into being. So there's that. There's also the idea that the world means all of the inhabitants of the earth. And, and that's what John 3.16 is speaking of when he says the world. It's not so much the created order as, is, as it is speaking about those that Jesus came to save, that he comes for, uh, to, to save people and it's because he loves humanity. He has a, a love for those who are made in his image and so he has made a way of salvation for them. But there's a third very frequent New Testament use of world that speaks in terms of that which is opposed to God. When he's using the term world, it often has this category of that which is um, in contrast to the kingdom of God, there is the world. And, and we start to see that division introduced in John 1.10 when it says of Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. By nature, human beings do not recognize Jesus for who he is as the divine son of God through whom creation came into being and through whom is life and forgiveness and salvation. We are, by nature, we are rebels against that. Man is alienated from God and lines up opposed to God, apart from a work of his grace in salvation. In John 18, 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And with that, the New Testament then begins to unfold this sharp divide between the temporary world of man, the, the sort of kingdom that, that human beings build out of power and possessions and stuff that is sort of man's world, that which is opposed to God and that which is passing away, and the eternal kingdom of God that which will last on forever, that which represents the will of God. And they are different in many ways. One, one small example, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about sorrow that we experience because of our sin, because of our wrongdoing, and it describes two kinds of sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7. There is godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow produces repentance. It is a sense that I have done wrong, I have done wrong before God. I am seeking to turn from that. I am asking God for forgiveness. I am writing, trying to right wrongs with any I have offended. And so there's this godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is just that sort of anger or frustration that I got caught or that I'm now having to face some kind of consequences because of what I've done. And so that's why it goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 7, worldly sorrow leads to death. It doesn't actually accomplish anything. It's just really an expression of regret. The world that we must not love is all that is opposed 
to God and is not honoring to him, not seeking to glorify him. And so we really get the description of this in verse 16. And this is where we're going to settle in for the next few minutes. It's just sort of understanding the command based on 1 John 2.16, which says, For all that is in the world... Now, sort of parenthetically, he describes it in three ways. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I had a fairly strict Baptistic upbringing that that had a, a pretty good set of rules that I understood, especially as a teenager. And so I was told that Dancing, drinking, playing cards, and going to movies was worldly, and therefore it should not be done. And, and that's not necessarily, I'm not trying to say that that's wrong, there is some substance to that. John is not dismissing these prohibitions. But John is not concerned to make a, a behavior checklist here to say this, this is worldly, this is kingdom, but what he's getting at with the word desires and pride of life is the heart. He's focusing on the attitude of the heart and what it is that we are drawn to, what our desires direct our lives to. And in particular, he's concerned about desires that would direct us away from God, about our heart churning for things that would, would move us away from fellowship with God. I'll read the writing of one commentator on this to help explain it. Translating this, these, these three, as sex, money, and power may not miss the mark by much. Still, it would be wrong to see here a simple combination of those things as such. Rather, it is a matter of what a person wills and desires, what one wants and trusts. The placing of things, whether material, mental, or spiritual, in the position of the ultimate object of desire is condemned kind of reminiscent of Romans 125, where it speaks of God's wrath being on the wicked and his wrath is upon them because they have chosen to honor and serve the creation instead of the creator. They are worshiping other people. They are worshiping stuff. They are worshiping things in nature at the expense of disregarding the creator of all of these things. And so their desires are drawn to and motivated by the world rather than by love for God. So I just want to consider these three descriptions in the middle there of verse 16 to kind of get a clear understanding of what he means by the world that we must not love. These three are sort of the Bible's way of summarizing for us the, the, the world. The first one is the desires of the flesh. Really speaking there about cravings, lusts that originate in us that originate in our flesh, the, the longings of our nature apart from Christ, apart from the, the working of the Spirit, things that are opposed to Christ, the, things that would draw us away from intimacy with God and fellowship with Him and, and would make that impossible. But the, the, when I say a, things that the, the flesh sort of apart from Christ, we've got to remember this is a command to believers. He's writing to believers in Jesus Christ this warning, and so he's reminding us of the fact that there is still within us remaining sin. There's still the effects of the fact that we know sin, that we've experienced sin, that we're still drawn by the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so that's where the desires of the, the flesh kick in. Even when redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, sin is still present. 
foolish and, and sensual desires still surface in my heart. And, and so the call here is to not yield to those things, to not allow those desires to become the things that would draw me away from fellowship, that would become ruling desires. In, in simplest terms, these desires of the flesh are, are sort of the functional way of making feelings God. I want to feel good. I, I, whatever the, the circumstances are, I want to be pleased in some way. I, I want to say what I want and not care what other people think. And, and so good feelings sort of become my functional God. These are the things that my heart, when left unchecked by the word of God, I'm not, I'm not meditating on God's word. I'm not submitting to God's spirit. When my heart is left unchecked, these are the things that Calvin said cause our hearts to be idle factories. They just continue to, to, to generate these sorts of desires for me that, that you would make me the center of your life because I want me to be the center of your life. I, I want to have my feelings rule the day. And these are desires of the flesh. Second one, he says, are desires of the eyes. Same Greek word for desires. It's lusts cravings. I think he's getting at here the idea of when we set our gaze on sinful passions, on the things that, that are in the world, the temptations that are all around us, and we allow our eyes to direct our hearts. We allow our eyes to say, that's what looks good to me. That's what I want to desire because that looks pleasurable and attractive. We, we constantly see things that even if they are bad, the world calls them good. And the world advertises them to us and says, this, this is good. You just need to believe that it's good and you need to embrace it and you need to go after it. And so we see what the world calls successful and, and, and pleasurable or indicative of higher status. If you want to be seen as somebody that, that, that people recognize, you need this. And those things advertise themselves to our eyes. See this, if you have it, You'll feel good, you'll be happy. One writer says the lust of the eyes is the moral short-sightedness that obscures higher and better realities. We see what's right in front of us and we want it, even though we know it's really not best for us. The, 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 the two, there's many biblical examples, but I'll give you two that I know you know that, that would come immediately to mind. There's Eve, who's been told that that fruit will lead to death, not, not fully understanding all the implications of what death means. She knows that God has given this delightful garden and all of these things to be enjoyed and been given one prohibition. Do not eat of the fruit of this tree. And yet it says that it was pleasing to her eyes. It looked really, really good. And so she forsook, her and Adam forsook the communion with God, the fellowship with God in order to eat the fruit. And then there's David. David, who walks into grave sin with lasting consequence for he and for his kingdom because he is standing on the roof and he will not avert his eyes away from Bathsheba. He determines to look at her and say, if I have her, then things will be better. That's what I want. And so that, therefore, that's who I'm calling for. It is the, the desires of the eyes. It, it is what we experience when we know that what we are seeing, what we are concentrating on, is, is probably directing our hearts away from God. It's probably not directing us into deeper communion with him. It's probably steering us further away, and yet we keep 
looking. We keep looking, and even though we know that it will move us toward a place of darkness and ultimately toward a place of guilt and shame, the desires of the eyes become these captivating, shiny objects that we, we, we keep looking at until they ultimately speak to our hearts and the foolish desires that are there. And then we start making the, the, the mental case for how this is actually beautiful and, and this, is, this is okay and, and sort of rationalize our way into sin. Third one's a little more difficult. It says the pride of life. Some of your ESV translations have a footnote that say pride in possessions. Another writer says the arrogance of life. It really has the idea of that, that arrogance is a, a good term there. It is the idea of being arrogant about life, being arrogant about my life. The, the, the Greek word that he uses there refers to a boaster or someone who's arrogant, it shows up only one other place in the New Testament, and that's in James chapter four, where it's the warning to those who say, I'm going to make all of these plans, I'm gonna go here, I'm gonna sell this, I'm gonna buy that, I've got life figured out, it's all on my, my phone's calendar, and therefore it's gospel, it's in concrete, and I will do all of these things because I put it there, because I added it to my calendar, and so therefore it will be. And, and his warning in James 4 is all such boasting, he calls it, is evil. All such arrogance. All such statements that I control my future and I set the course is evil. And so that's what in 1 John 2.16, it is really a, the arrogance of life. It's a godless view of life. It's sort of the, the, the contrary to what we, what, what we often do during offering time here. When we remind ourselves that all that we have is from God. It is his gift to us, that, that we are stewards, that, that everything we possess right down to life and health is a blessing from him, and, and we're just being good, faithful stewards with it. The pride of life says, no, th th this is mine. I have this. This is the, the, the perfect biblical picture of this is Nebuchadnezzar, who's walking on his palace roof and looks out and says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It's mine. Now, we may not walk on a palace roof, but we, we do the same sorts of things. This is mine. I, I possess this. Don't touch it. Don't dent it, don't scratch it, don't harm it. This is, this is my treasure. And, and yes, I will give lip service to the fact that it all comes from God, but I also, in my own heart, am, am kicking around the fact that I worked really hard for this degree. I know what I did to earn this degree. I know what I did to get this promotion. I know how hard I worked. This is my job. This is my title. Whatever it might be, I've earned it and I deserved it. That is what he's talking about here when he says, this is not of God. The pride of life is the height of human autonomy. It says, I, I, I do as I please, and I get what I want, and what I have is mine. W one of the commonalities that's, that's shared by all three of these is really point of, of origin, if you will. They're all rooted in a high view of self. A as believers in Jesus Christ, we are reminded from Scripture that our starting point is a high view of God. It is a big view of our Creator. He, he gives life. He sustains life. That I am here because He made me. I exist right now because He is causing my heart to beat. He is allowing me to breathe. It is all of Him, and so what I have then is to, to give back to Him. It is to honor Him. It is to be a good steward. The, the descriptions in verse 16 are about desires that arise in my own heart. 
These are the things that I want to control. These are the temptations that are put before my eyes that I want to rationalize my way to, even if they allure me away from God. They start as cravings in my heart because I'm not seeking to glorify him or honor him. I'm seeking to satisfy myself. So the command to love not the world or the things in the world really revolves around these descriptions in verse 16, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is an affection for things that will draw me away from fellowship with God. It is things that will interfere with my communion with him. I, thinking about this this week, I think there's a sense in which if you take John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only beloved son, take John 3.16, take 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world, it, it probably, taken together, gives as best a biblical framework as I can give for the often used phrase, hate the sin but love the sinner. It really is sort of a, a description when you take those two together. John Stott wrote it this way. He said, viewed as people... The world must be loved, viewed as an evil system, organized under the dominion of Satan and not of God. It is not to be loved. We are to serve and love people. They are made in his image and likeness. And so we are to be loving toward people, but we are not to love the godless bent of the world. We're not to find the world's rebellion attractive. I feel like this is where it, 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 it sort of convicted me as I'm thinking about this this week, and this is where it sort of hits us in that we are, we are an audience to so much in the world. By virtue of the internet, we see more than any generation before us has seen. It gives us that foolish illusion of, of sort of almost omnipresence because we see so much. And it's so easy to just be numb to it. To, to, to find some of it just humorous or even to be attracted to some of it. And where it is a worldly bent away from God, we should not be attracted to that. Where the things the world finds pleasure in that would draw us away from God, we should not be trying to see if there's ways that we can partake of just a little of that, that we can handle just so much of that and, and, and still not get ourselves in trouble. We're not to embrace what the world loves, not even for the purposes of finding common ground and showing tolerance. That This is where I think that fine line comes in that we're to walk, of where we are loving the people because they are made in the image of God and desperately in need of God's salvation, and, and we are vessels through which he will model that and speak that, and yet still not loving the, the whole system and the values that go with the world. And so with that in mind, then let me give you the, the, the three supporting arguments, and we'll move through these a little bit more, uh, a little more quickly as we go through the three of them. But the three arguments he gives around this command to not love the world, three things that John gives to incentivize our obedience. And I put them in your notes under the heading of identity, incompatibility, and impermanence. And while we're talking about the culture, just, just an aside for just a moment, Here's, here's, a, here's a little pastoral aside when sermon prep comes. So I, I had in my mind identity. Okay, that was easy. Incompatibility, I got that. I'm trying to think of the third one, and I couldn't think of an I word. And so I tried chat GBT. Yeah. GBT, right? <laughs> and give me an I word that speaks of something that is fleeting, something that is temporary, something that is going away. And three times in a row, it gave me words that start with the letter E. 
And I'm like, that starts with E. Give me a word that starts with I. And it was like I'm having this running debate with it and finally went to my own favorite chat GBT. I went to Stuart and, and <laughs> he looked on his Apple thesaurus and said, how about impermanence? And there we had impermanence. So that, that was my I word. And the, the AI just wasn't quite there. I guess Apple has gotten there, but the other one wasn't there. But anyway, that's just an aside. Let me read 1 John 2, 12 through 14. This is the identity section. 1 John 2, 12 through 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. All sorts of questions that come up with these three verses. Scholars, first of all, wrestle with the placement of it because you really could go from verse 11 to verse 15. Verse 11 was just saying that you should not love, uh, you should not hate your brother. Whoever hates his brother walks in the darkness was the end of verse 11. And you could easily transition from that to the command in verse 15 to not love the world. So what do we do with the, the, this? Why, why, is, why does John interject this here? It's almost a poetic kind of piece. I'm writing to you, I write to you, fathers, children, young ones, um, fathers, young men, and, and children. What, what's, why is this here? He's speaking in these categories. I would say to you, first of all, that he's speaking in categories that aren't, it's not talking necessarily biological as much as he's speaking of the family of God. There are those who are, more mature in the faith, who are older, as he represents them by fathers, and there are those who are younger in the faith, who are represented by the, the description of young men. The, 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 the one place where he sort of distinguishes is he calls little children in verse 12, and then children at the end of verse 14. There's two different Greek words that he uses there. The others pair up, but these two are different has the idea in the first one of an infant that is born of parents, a child who is born of these parents. The second word is more of one who is under the instruction, under the discipline of, of parents. So maybe a, an, an older child, but who is still within the home and is still under instruction. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, that actually makes great sense to us. It, it, on the one hand, as new believers, we are being born into the family of God. We are being born again, as the, the language that's used in John chapter 3. Uh, we are being given new life and born as children of his, but then we continue to grow in Christ as his children. And so I would suggest to you that, John, the, the, the distinction here really is two categories. To everyone he's writing, he's calling children. We are children, those who have been born into God's family, those who grow in God's family. The distinction then is between the two, the fathers who are perhaps older, more mature, and those who are the young men who are younger in their relationship with Christ. All of this is ultimately about our identity. The other uh, distinction, and, and I just want to point it out just because you, you may ask, because you look at it and say, he says, I am writing, I am writing, I am writing, I write to you, I write to you. It's just a, it's a verb tense deal. Um, I am present tense, I am writing this to you, and then I am what's called aorist tense. At a point in time, I have written you. So the, he, he's just reaffirming, echoing the same things, and he's saying, I, I have written this to you as well. So I am writing, and I have written. Why does he repeat emphasis? It, it really is, I, I, I think, more of a Hebrew background of just emphasizing something that he wants his people to hear. And so he's repeating himself in some sense because he wants us to understand our identity. 
John has just given, back in the, the prior verses, the stern warning about loving or hating one's brother. You cannot hate your brother and say that you walk in the light. It's a rather stern statement. He's about to give this very serious command about not loving the world. And so in very much John's style, this is a pause that says, let me reassure you. Let me, let me remind you here of who you are. And, and so before you are tempted to think, oh, these instructions, these, this command, this is such a burden, this is so hard, John, you're just piling stuff on. If you think that way, that's probably because you've forgotten your identity. You need to remember who you are. And so that's what he's doing in 12 through 14. And he's saying, your identity is this. Your sins are forgiven. You have fellowship with God through the knowledge of him. And you are being empowered by him to have victory over evil. Those are the things that he wants to emphasize in, in these statements in 12 through 14. God forgives you in Christ. He has revealed himself to you through Christ and through his word so that you may know him and fellowship with him. And he has now given you his word and his spirit so that you would continue in him and abide in him, strengthening you to resist your enemy. Remember again, it's important to keep going back to this. This is an audience, first century audience, that's being subjected to false teaching. All of the, the potential confusion that would go with that. This is what I thought salvation was. This is who I thought Jesus was. And now these teachers are, are saying this. And, and John essentially is saying, let me be clear. Let me be clear. Let me say it. Let me say each of these twice so that I'm clear on this. I am writing to you so that you would know your sins are forgiven, that the gospel has not changed, that Jesus has not changed. I am writing to you so that you would know that this gospel you have believed is what brought you into fellowship with God, and it's still, you are still in fellowship with him. And I am writing to tell you that there's not some secret formula for how you should now live. I am already empowering you to obey. So follow my commands and know that I will give you the grace and strength to obey. And, and John's interesting because he even assumes the best. I am writing this to you because your sins are forgiven. There should be a little part of us that pauses there and goes, whoa, John, we don't, we don't want to go giving somebody false assurance and saying, I, I'm telling you your sins are forgiven. But remember, he's, he's actually already explained this back in 1 John 1, 9. If, you confess, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us, right? So he's already set the, the, the presupposition, which is that if you have confessed to God that you are a sinner, you have turned to him, you have turned to faith in Christ, then, then you are children born of him. And as children born of him, you are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You are no longer held captive as an enemy of God. The debt has been paid. And in fact, he writes, you know him who is from the beginning could be referring to the father. More likely, it's a reference to the, the, the son, it seems to be in context. It, it could, frankly, it could be both. I don't think it's real necessary to be precise here. You, you, you come to know the father through the revelation of the son. But the statement to father is about knowing God. Let me just say by application, this is for all mature believers. He's not just saying 
clearly the father term, we we picture an older male, but, but by terms of application, what he's trying to say here is those who are mature, those who are to be examples, if you will, in the faith. Um, earlier in, in John chapter 2, back at the beginning of the chapter, John warned about those who claim to know God but who do not obey God. And what he says there, if you say you know God but you don't obey God, you don't actually know God. And here he's saying, fathers, you have known, you know him. Twice, in fact. Essentially saying, you, you are mature. You know him. You, you, you've been taught this truth. You have put your faith in him. You know who he is. You are in fellowship with him. The Greek word for knowledge also has that idea of of, of intimacy, of of fellowship. So it's not just you have mental awareness of the theology that's behind all this. That's good. But you also, you know God. You are near to God. You know his ways. You know that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So when you get down to verse 15 and he says, do not love the world or the things in the world, what this identity piece has basically said is, you you know, you know who God is and, 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 and you're mature enough to know the difference between that which is glorifying the world and that which is glorifying God. We'll wrestle and we try to blur those lines, but essentially he's saying, you're mature, you know who God is and have fellowship with him. Can I say to you, my peers, um, and, and it doesn't have to be just by age, I'm talking about maturity, I guess, in your walk with Christ. There, there's an, an exhortation, I think, included in this when he describes them as fathers for those who have walked with the Lord for a long time and who have been seasoned in his truth and who have experienced his grace. You have an opportunity to be like anchors in the Christian community. You have the opportunity to live this out so that not only do people see clearly the truth and are convicted by it, but they also have in front of them examples of people who have walked through suffering and trials and, and temptation and, and hazards and all sorts of things and have seen God's faithfulness and can testify to that and exhort those who are younger in the faith that he is good. I, I, I can tell you of his goodness. And so that, that title of father is just like, Fathers are called to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So should mature believers see that opportunity. How do I disciple somebody who's younger in the faith? How do I help them see this this truth lived out? Then he describes the young men as being fully engaged in the sort of battles, if you will, of Christian living. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then later, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Our identity is forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. Our identity is to be in fellowship with God, to know God and be in fellowship with him. But the other facet of our identity that he's getting at here is that we are to become more like Christ. As we grow, our lives should be transforming to be more and more like Christ. And isn't that then where the daily struggle comes? That's where the enemy, knowing that he cannot rob us of our faith in Christ, certainly wants to mar the image of Christ in us and wants us to act worldly so that we do not look like Christ. But that's the other piece of our identity here. And the beauty of what John is saying is, you who are born of God, you who are children of God, you are ultimately on the winning team. I I can assure you that there is ultimate 
victory in all of this because your perseverance in Christ is assured. You are his. The Holy Spirit is in you. And as he will go on to say, and we'll read when we get to chapter four, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And that's why we can look at this and why he's saying to the young men, know that your identity is, you, you are growing more like Christ. And as you battle sin and evil, the ultimate outcome of this is secure because it also is assuming that you will continue to abide in the word. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will understand your dependence on the word and on the spirit, and you will continue to abide in him and walk in him. And that's why he brings that to bear in verse 14. This is just another message of assurance that John wants to give. As you are battling with life's temptations and with sin and the enemy's attack, know that the word of God is, is at work in you. It is, it is bearing fruit slowly at times, uh, difficult sometimes, and yet he is working in you and bearing fruit as you abide in him that brings you strength and growth, and he is ultimately going to be victorious through you. And I would say to those who are in that category, those who by application are young in their faith, you too are called to be examples in faith and conduct. Just go to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and Paul's reminder to Timothy, don't let people look down on you for your youth, but rather you be an example to them in faith and purity and love and conduct. You, you follow Christ, you abide in his word, and you be a model for others. So that's identity. Let me, let's read on the second one, verse 15. Again, we'll cover verse 15, but also 16 here. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. John's second argument for obeying the command to not love the world or the things in the world is incompatibility. These two are mutually exclusive. Love of the world and love of the Father cannot be joined together because the world overwhelmingly rejects Jesus. So how can we, who are trusting in Jesus, who believe that Jesus shed his blood and died on the cross for our sins, how can we love that which denies who Jesus is, which denies his atonement, which says it is insignificant? How is it that we can make the world and its stuff an object of our affection and desire when we know what the Savior has done for us? And so when verse 15 says the love of the Father is not in that person, love of the Father probably could be rendered love for the Father. You can go either way there with that, the, the, the word. And, and so it, it probably has the idea of you cannot have as the object of your love the Father and the world. You cannot say, I love God, as Jesus teaches, and love money at the same time. I, I, I love God but I love this kind of relationship that brings me the sort of feeling that I want and I need and I have to have this to, to be just right with the world and, and I can't find my full satisfaction over here. I need it, some of it from here too. And so verse 15 is challenging the area of what we set our affection on because it's a contradiction, he says, that cannot be reconciled. The, the, the two are mutually exclusive, the love for the world and the love for the Father. All the things we talked about earlier, desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes, pride of life, all the, the cravings in our hearts for pleasure more than holiness. 
the, the temptations of the world that dishonor God, the arrogance that pretends that I deserve all that I have, he's saying, that is not from God. That doesn't come from him, and therefore to set your affection on that is to oppose him. What is of God is a passion to love and serve him and to serve the creatures, the, the, the people that he's made. It, what is of God is to fix our eyes with gratitude on what he has provided for us and to say, Lord, this is, this is good. Thank you. I, I, I thank you for what you have given me and not constantly looking all around for contentment. What is of God is the humility that says, what I have is from him. It, I, I, what, whatever I've, I've earned is because I've worked by gifts that he's given me and skill that he's given me and strength that he's given me. And it's all then of, of him. Love for the world and love for God are not compatible. That's the second reason to obey the command. Last one's verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John has shown us our identity, teaching us to not love the world, the incompatibility of love of the world and love of God, and then his final argument is impermanence. Last week in verse 8, we saw this phrase passing away, same as in verse 17, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, it says back in verse 8. Remember that? We talked about that last week. Jesus Christ has come, the true light has come into the world, and that light now shines through his disciples through, through the body of believers, the light of Christ continues to shine. And when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, his light will shine over all of his new creation. It will be the light of his creation. So this light that has come is growing and it is, it is becoming greater and it will ultimately be the light. On the other hand, that which is of Satan's, as persuasive and as powerful as it may seem, its time is short because of the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ, his light will prevail and darkness will continue to pass away. It will ultimately deteriorate. Well, that same language of passing away is used to describe the world and its desires. The whole system of evil that has aligned itself against God is doomed for destruction. It will be gone. It will pass away. It is already passing away. It will become extinct. And so the, the, the fact that the world and its evil are passing away also gives us hope. We talked about it before, that, that, that knowledge, that assurance of ultimate victory in Christ, because there is coming a day when this will, will all be ended, when the, the world and its system and all its opposition to God will be gone. And it is the hope of our ultimate transformation in the image of Christ, because he is the king. He is the one who is conquering, and, and he will be victorious. And, and so to pursue... To, to set our hearts on, on the world and its things and what the world says is, is worth acclaim and, and all of that is ultimately futile. It's why Jesus in Matthew 16 asks, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses what? His soul. If he, he's pursued everything, chased after that which is material and fleeting, and it's not just stuff, it, it, it's... It goes, I said it earlier, it's that, that, that mentality that says, I, I have to have 
this person in my life. I must have this relationship. I, I, this must be what God gives me. I must have a child or I must have this, whatever that, that is that we say I've got to have in order to be happy and satisfied and content. All of that scripture keeps saying to us, all of that, that desire for that kind of contentment or satisfaction is fleeting. Because even if we get it, we'll find that it's still flawed it, it, it still brings pain. There's still struggle that goes with it. There is only one in whom there is ultimate satisfaction. There is nothing permanent about the world's richest treasures or, or the world's most beautiful pleasures. It's all fleeting. For all of man's efforts to save the planet, the, the, the whole structure of this cosmos is not built to last in its current form. It will be gone and it will be made new in the new heavens and, and the new earth. It is all fleeting. But, he says, the will of God, that stands forever. That which is part of the kingdom of God, that which God has determined, that those who abide in him and obey his will will abide in his kingdom for all of eternity. So, to bring this to a, to a close, if you will, this section should prompt some sober reflection because it's a serious command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. All this week as I'm meditating on this, I'm thinking about what stuff that, that can captivate me and, and, and trying to find that balance of, of, of God in Ecclesiastes saying, eat, drink, and enjoy. I've made this, I've made it. But, but understand that even in that, it's still a stewardship thing. It's still a gift to you. And so enjoy it as something that I have given you as opposed to my, my normal bent, which is to just savor and, and, and pursue and, and want. Let, let me read to you. I, somebody says it better than I think I can. Karen Jobes writes this. When, when John commands us to not love the world or the things in the world, he is speaking of one's most basic life orientation. If our lives are not directed toward God in our every decision of each day, then even our most passionate efforts and causes amount to polishing brass on the Titanic. True, isn't it? Our identity and our hope is fully in Christ. It is in who Jesus is and what he's done. In Jesus alone is abundant life, both now and for eternity, and all that the world has to offer is fleeting and will be gone. And so this passage should challenge us to ask, what, what's driving me? What, what infatuates me? What do I find myself so easily captured by? that fellowship with God suddenly becomes a distant thing because I just, it's my anger or it's my lust or it's my dishonesty or whatever it is, my materialism, I just, I just want this. And suddenly God just fades away in, in, that, in that scene. Even still beyond that, what, what boundaries do you have in place? And this, is, this gets into the whole worldliness and and what do we do with, it's not a checklist, but what do we do with those desires of the heart? What boundaries do we set so that we can love those who are made in God's image, all the while knowing that their greatest need is salvation in Christ, and, 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 and that we are conduits, perhaps, for that, and that all that they seem to have is but a breath, and it's gone. How do we set those boundaries 
to love and yet to know that this is fleeting and I don't, I don't need to be jealous. I don't need to be arrogant. How are you interacting with the world and putting to death your own fleshly desires for the things that the world uses to entice you with? We've all got those areas that are just the, the, the shiny bait that, that just is so alluring. If your identity is forgiven, your sins being forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you are in fellowship with the living God by virtue of the new birth, then he is urging you to abide, to walk with him, to abide in his word, to be in the place where you know his will and you walk in his will and to walk in dependence on his spirit and to repent of when your eyes are fixed in their gaze and starting to desire, repent of that and turn from that because Jesus is all in all. And Jesus will and longs to give you and I the strength to find our satisfaction in him and to love him and not the world or the things in the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you as a people who, when we read your word, your spirit uses it as an instrument to divide down to soul and spirit, joints and marrow, to even the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so I am, I am certain that if my brothers and sisters have received your word to any measure as you have been working in my heart, this, this is a convicting passage. The world is alive and well and before us, and we know that it is passing away, and yet there are times it seems so vibrant and colorful and grand and alluring, and in those times it becomes often easy to not even see you there, to not, to not appreciate that whatever is lovely and beautiful is, is a gift from your hand. And so, Father, we come before you as a people grateful, grateful for your mercy, thankful that we can, with John, all here who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and who have been born as children of yours can confess with John, I am forgiven of my sins. Thank you for fellowship with you. Thank you for the ability to know you and walk with you. And Father, thank you that for as difficult as the, the daily struggles can be with temptation and with the enticements of the world, thank you that there is a, a hope and a promise of victory, that there is an assurance that your spirit and your word will continue to change us more and more into the image of your son. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone listening online or in here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ as their savior, who has no certainty of what would happen if they were to die today, that this would be the day when, when the beauty and glory of Jesus would be just overwhelming, that you would show them that the savior who died on the cross to bear the wrath that was deserved against their sin and who rose again to eternal life is the Savior who now invites them to come and trust in him and walk with him. Lord, would you bring repentance and forgiveness and salvation this day? And Lord, as a body of believers, help us. Lord, we, 
We are surrounded by the images of the world on a constant basis. Help us, we pray, to navigate that with an attitude of dependence on you. Help us to continue to be in your word. I know, Lord, we have not answered all the questions this morning about navigating through worldliness and, and, and how to respond to specific situations. And so help us to be students of your word, seeking your wisdom and your help from your spirit as we strive to love you supremely. We pray all these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.